I need some clarity. clarity. Peace, love, and prosperity. Clarity. With the fame, cause popularity. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Athlete Podcast. My name is Bill and I'm your host. Thank you for checking in. Episode number 13, Random Bag number 2, The Holiday Boogaloo. Before we get started, I hope you guys really do like this podcast. It seems like I'm getting a little bit more traffic. I'd love to see a lot more. It's just going to motivate me to begin uh, putting out some more uh, more episodes here. So just uh, mash like, share, please share with people. Um, I do really hope you enjoy the content. So uh, sorry about the delay uh, in getting content out, actually. I think it's been a minute. Uh, you're going to find that this random bag uh, kind of gets all over the place. There was an episode that I, or a, a segment, I should say, that I had recorded probably like a couple months ago, and then um, kind of waffled on an idea, which I'm going to just move into the new year, and then ended up, you know, recording another one that, you know, was kind of fun and whatever. So I, I decided to finish it, and I do apologize if I sound like I'm coming off of a cold, because I am. Uh, it's been kind of annoying, but it is what it is. It's just part of uh, the natural progression of things. So this one is Random Bag 2, the holiday boogaloo. Obviously, we're getting close to the holiday. So uh, a couple of these segments, I think, are somewhat uh, fun. I, I think they're interesting uh, to kind of look at from the perspective that I take from them. Uh, there's one on supplementation. Uh, there's one on impulse control. And there's one on... Um, the idea of genetic risk. And I, you know, I think they kind of come together to pretty much create a complete pod, whatever that means. Um, and this one's going to be a little extra long because I haven't talked to you guys in a while and I want to give you plenty of stuff to listen to if you have to travel. Um, I think this one comes together because it's the perfect, you know, part of the, the holidays going into the new year. It's we're about to hit this season of joy and celebration with our friends and our family. It's going to involve a lot of eating, a lot of drinking, um, and so on and so forth. And just, you know, it's usually my favorite time of year. And so it, it yeah, you, you, it's, it's time to have a good time. But then you juxtapose that with the New Year's, and I think that health is got to become a priority in this country, more so than we know. Uh, these things are not probably stopping in terms of like new viruses, new bugs, whatever. It's a constantly changing thing. So instead of being fearful, you know, take care of yourself, I think is a pretty good attitude to have moving forward. And, you know, the New Year is always a time when people make those resolutions and they stick to their guns and they get something done. It happens. I mean, obviously, there's always a drop off rate. But I also think that having an attitude going into the holidays that allows you to assure yourself success going into the new year is pretty important as well. And, you know, for years, I've talked about the earn the bird attitude. There's a podcast that I did on that. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to it. It's a fun one. Um, I, it's just like this year as every year I ran the turkey trot. I do it every year. That's what that whole idea came from, but it's really just an attitude towards, you know, I want to enjoy myself in the holiday. I want to eat an extra slice of cheesecake, but it doesn't mean I have to eat every meal. Like it's my last meal. I can, I can exact a little bit of control at certain points of the time and still get my cake and eat it too. And that's another kind of like food punny. I like throwing the food puns in there. So when you think about some of these things, um, you know, genetic risk, it ties in because so many people are scared of what that means. 
Um, I try to go into a little bit of depth about what that is from the perspective of, of you know, the gene itself and how these things are regulated. Um, and then the supplement one, I think, is just kind of a fun one because I've never been a fan. And you're going to see the ads for all of those kick up in really, really, really grand fashion going into January. That's usually what it is. Um, know that most of it's snake oil. I think that you can do better just with real food. That's my stance. It's always been, it's been, well, I don't want to say it's always been my stance. I certainly used supplements before I discussed that, but the reality is, is that I, I prefer the whole food method. So, you know, just some things for you to think about while you're sitting around the dinner table, discuss with your family, you know, tell uncle Tim about, uh, intermittent fasting and how it may help you exact some control on your, um, your impulses. So I hope you guys enjoy uh, and I hope you guys have a happy holiday. So I would say one of the probably most often asked questions I get are about nutritional supplementation and nutritional supplements in general, performance enhancing supplements, um, gap fillers, whatever you want to call them. And I always have to tell them I'm just not a supplement guy. And I get approached by a lot of people to sell supplements. I mean, I've done it in the past. I've used supplements in the past. Um, but I guess I could say that at this point, at this stage of my life and my career, I don't think they are 100% necessary. And not to say that you can't get some performance boosts from certain things that are out there and some of those things are tried and true. Um, but I, I just don't think that some of the overhype for the supplement market is as big as it should be. And so I've really steered away from it. I think that you can get everything you need from real food. And so I just wanted to kind of briefly touch on, you know, what I understand about the supplement market, you know, some of my experience with it and why it is that as I've gotten older, I've really become more of a fan of just eating whole natural food. I mean, I don't, I don't currently take any supplements whatsoever. I don't take any multivitamin. I don't use a protein powder. Um, I just eat food. I eat food and that's about it. Um, drink a lot of water, um, coffee. I guess coffee would be the only performance enhancer that I probably really take in my life uh, these days. But, um, you know, I, I used to do a lot of the protein powders. Um, I did creatine, which, you know, creatine works. Uh, creatine works pretty well um, if, if, if you use it correctly. And I always used to love how they would give you the, and this is kind of circling back, why they would give you the loading dose was because they wanted to sell more product. But, um, you know, I utilized those things. Um, I utilized a lot of the ephedrine-based pills back in the day. And I even, you know, I even tried testosterone a few times, mostly out of curiosity. Um, and yes, the, the very first time that I did, I was almost floored at the level of strength that I got. The gains were insane. So I can see why people can become somewhat attached to those things. But the reality is, and, and I remember um, a video I used to show in my nutrition class, Bigger, Stronger, Faster. Um, there's a segment about supplementation uh, where you know he's talking about the market and how it's a deregulated market. So the FDA does not regulate the supplement market in the United States. Um, they get around that by the way that they use the language on their packaging, and that allows them to pretty much do whatever they want. None of that stuff's going to get tested. Um, in fact, a lot of other countries have much stricter rules about what can be sold um, 
as a nutritional supplement. Um, and actually, you know, kind of preparing to do this talk, I just found an article where there was um, a scientist calling for better, more thorough research because of the exploding market of nutraceuticals. And as I was doing that same search, I just, you know, searched in nutritional supplements and, and it's crazy the amount of stuff that pops up right away. Um, and, you know, I haven't really been abreast of the market in a long time, so I don't know a lot of what's out there or what the new hot thing is, but I just find the the proliferation of it interesting, and I find how little people know about the industry interesting. So to kind of circle back to the bigger, stronger, faster thing um, idea was that, you know, he was he was talking to people in this market, and he was finding out that people that were marketing certain products were actually using steroids. And so the whole, you know, documentary is really about the use of steroids and how, you know, why wouldn't people use it? You know, the baseball and the, the wrestling and all the stuff. They, they kind of chronicle a lot of that in that. It's a really cool, fun documentary if you've never seen it before. Um, but he kind of circles back and he says, why, why are we spending all of our money on products that may work? when you just spend the money on something that does work, which is the testosterone. So it's, it's just funny how that kind of plays itself out with the nutritional market and the nutritional supplement market. So, um, you know, I, I think there's some that have value. I don't want to bash them all. I think there's a lot of stuff that's just crap. Um, like, for instance, uh, the, the cleanses, all the little cleanse deals out there are all crap. Um, and don't get offended if you sell a cleanse, please. I, I, I just don't see a value in it. You can fast and drink a lot of water and that's going to cleanse you quite fine without having, you know, whatever mixture of botanicals is, is, you know, going to trap whatever, um, impurities or whatever in your blood. I don't know. Some of that stuff just seems like hocus pocus to me. Um, but you know, uh, protein powders, things like that always have value for people that want extra protein, especially if you're active and you're maintaining a certain type of diet. It's, it is a gap filler that has value. I think people need to be very specific about what they're looking for and not just buy any protein powder. Now, again, it's been a very long time since I've purchased or looked at any of those, but you know, there's certain types that are better than others in terms of like the quality and the potency. Um, you should always do massive reviews on anything, any of these things you purchase, especially if it feels like it's one of the, um, the multi-level marketing type deals because you never really know. And I, you know, I'd spend some time with a couple of those and I find that all the products are pretty much the same. Uh, there's not really anything that separates one from the other, other than branding and message, I guess you would say. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's some other things out there. I think there's more uh, traditional type deals that are out there that have some value as well. There's some herbs and stuff like that um, that certainly have, like turmeric is a big one. Like you can, like turmeric is found in a lot of different, like, you know, nutraceutical anti, anti-inflammatory type deals because there is, there's a value to it. It's been pretty well tested. So, you know, I don't want to say don't, don't, you know, take whatever it is if it, if it gives you a benefit. Um, you know, the cleanses are ones that I think are, are kind of bupkis. Um, I'm, I go in and out with probiotics. I think that's another one that I think are pretty popular right now. Um, I think there are plenty of probiotics in your environment that are natural whole food that has life to it that, 
does it a little bit better and does it a little bit more naturally. But obviously people get weird when you start talking about fasting and not eating for days. We're so programmed to eat. And, you know, I've kind of come to the realization that I was wrong about that and that, you know, spending more time in the fast is probably way better for the body, way more medicinal than I I would have ever given it credit for. Um, And so I've been doing it a lot lately and I've been noticing the distance, but people are very protective of their meals because of sort of that comfort behavior you know, relationship to it. So I, you know, I don't want to get into that with too much detail, but I would say be very leery of supplementation. And that's why I don't particularly, you know, support them or try to get people on them. You know, they're, they're highly processed things. And some of these, you know, products try to get you to think of the entirety of your nutrition as that particular thing, you know, push out real food. You're not grocery shopping anymore. You're taking these three shakes a day and this and that, and, and you'll see the results. And, and I just, I feel like that is the wrong message. I think we should start promoting more real food and show people how the value of just eating real food and then find, you know, the gap fillers that work for each individual, because, you know, I am kind of a functional medicine disciple. I do like reading things on functional medicine. And I do agree that certain uh, vitamin and mineral um, supplementations may have values for people that need them. But I think that should be handled between uh, uh, someone who understands that, a licensed physician uh, that does functional medicine more so than even just a regular uh, family doctor. So you need to really do your research before you start purchasing products because that stuff does get very expensive. So there it is. There's my diatribe on nutritional supplementation. On to the next segment. So one of the topics that I I typically do enjoy because I think this is one of those areas in which people don't really quite get what the term genetic risk means. And recently this conversation was brought up to me because I was speaking with a new client and they were talking about, you know, family history of certain genetic issues and how it seems to be playing out with their health. And I basically told them that Genetic risk is not a death sentence, and though I think it's pretty clear that humans are all born to die, I know that's a tough uh, pill to swallow sometimes, but the reality is, is that your genetic risk is really this, that. It's a risk. It's a probability of you developing a disease. It's not a foregone conclusion. And so I wanted to just briefly kind of talk about this and give you my opinion on this. I don't think there's going to be a ton of science in this. I'm going to give you from the perspective of what I learned. And hopefully you guys kind of understand uh, this equation a little bit better as we go. So uh, first, let me just kind of, you know, briefly get into how I started learning about the genome. So when I got into grad school, I became really fascinated with the cellular molecular um, principles of the human body. That was part of the way that the department was going at the time. I tended to chum around students and professors that were really into that stuff. And then, you know, as I ran out of classes in my department, as I got deeper into graduate studies, I began venturing off to other departments like biology and chemistry. And in the beginning, I I tended to steer towards the biological realm. And I took several classes that were related to cellular function, um, advanced cellular biology and advanced molecular biology. And then there was another molecular biology class that was a little bit higher up in which they really kind of talk about the history of the research. And so, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about this is how new a lot of this research is because molecular biology, which is the study of the genome and how it works, was really very new back in even the early 80s. It was, you know, they, I, I want to say like it was the 50s when DNA was first discovered. 
uh, by Watson and Crick. And then from there, we've kind of go go forward. And, and here we are now where we actually have the entire genome mapped out and we can start actually looking at genes and seeing which ones uh, relay certain risk. Now, why is it that I say that it's not a foregone conclusion and that risk is really just a probability of uh, getting a certain disease? Because the reality is, and this is where I think I work a little bit more, you know, people who are geneticists and internal medicine uh, work more at that cellular level using the different medications and stuff like that. For me, you know, I like to look at behaviors and environmental factors that may actually upset the balance because the reality of genetic risk is this. If the environmental factors are not available, the genetic risk may or may not ever be expressed. And that kind of goes into, I think, what the science has shown over time. And again, I mentioned a few seconds ago how molecular bio biology is still very young industry. However, what they found sort of allows us to understand why genetic risk is a hit or miss factor, why some people who have it in their genome get it and why some people don't. And even then we can talk about what the environmental factors that may lead to the expression of a gene, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that it's going to become a full-blown disease. And, and, and there are certain um, genetic factors that are a little bit more potent than others, but I think most of them that we tend to talk about in the health and fitness realm, which are, you know, related to heart disease, related to cancer, related to diabetes, these things are all infinitely preventable if you are smart about the way that you allow your body to experience the environment. And, and, and I think the best way to describe the DNA and what has been elucidated by, um, the molecular biology study is that it is a sensory system. It is there to sense your environment and it's there to adapt to the environment at a very quick pace. In other words, it can shift the way that its expression patterns relatively quickly. Now, when do those expression patterns begin to show up in an organism level? Well, that's, that's another conversation for another day because oftentimes when people, you know, go into uh, exercise and they're trying to change their body, they, they want to see the results right away. And the reality is, is we don't know how long it's going to be for a consistent change in the genetic um, expression of your body before it starts to dump the weight the way that you want to, or your body starts to change. I mean, that's interpersonal. And I think that's the best way to describe why genetic risk is such a crapshoot, is that everybody has this mixed bag of genetic expression and everybody is born into a certain environment and sometimes that environment doesn't match what the genetic expression is, sometimes it does. And, and it's always interesting to see how the different phenotypes play out as uh, this goes. But one of the things is so evident now about the genome is how highly regulated it is. And I mean regulated in a way that is so intricate and um, complex and fail-safe to allow us not to go into genetic expression that can be instantly death-causing. And I think that's really what the body tries to do a lot of the times, is make sure that it's making its, its changes in a gradual, progressive way as to not upset the overall balance of the organism. And this term is actually called epigenetics, and I'm sure some people have heard this term before. It's a pretty popular one out there now in health and science. And really, uh, originally, when they started to code the genome and look at it, they were looking for all the instructions built into the actual code. So the various, um, you know, orientations of the different bases that make up DNA 
which is more or less the blueprint. And we're not even going to get into the RNA and all this other stuff. And I know that's a fun topic right now, but we won't get into that today. But um, all of these things are done with purpose, but also done in a way where if you were just to isolate that singular code for what is a gene, okay, and we can pick any of the genes in our body, what our hair color is, all of that. But that code is not complete when you cut it out of. So when you copy it, the mRNA, which is the thing that copies the DNA and then takes it to the actual machinery, that copy is actually treated quite heavily before it's actually. And there are parts of that code that are nonsense. They're, they're not there to give any instructions as far as we know, I guess, at this point. Um, but at the same time, those things have to be removed, reorganized. There's all kinds of different little uh, enzymes and such that, that alter the mRNA before it actually becomes a protein. And again, that's really the move there is DNA coded into a protein. And we have a ton of these proteins all throughout our body. So anyway, all of that intricate level of control is why the environment is probably the biggest factor into whether genetics are expressed in a certain way. Because if you are in a place that has a dryish climate that tends to be highly pollinated, if you have an immune system genetic code that leads to um, allergies to that, then yeah, you're going to be in an environment where you're going to feel awful more often than if you were in an environment that had a different set of environmental circumstances that don't exacerbate that particular issue. And that's the thing. It's like saying if, you're, if your body um, genetically is susceptible to type 2 diabetes, then you probably should watch your sugar intake and watch some of your food intake. I think that's a pretty simple thing to do, but yet we don't really look at it that way. So, but at the same time, people get type 2 diabetes and they think, oh my God, it's, it's the end of the world. And the reality is, is it can be reversed if you, if you stick to some intermittent fasting. There's, there's enough data out there to show that type 2 diabetes can be reversed chemically in the body without using any medications if the person is willing to make the changes in their, in their lifestyle, in their environment, that are going to allow that to occur. And again, it's, it's really difficult for people to understand this and or how easy this balance can be upset. You know, oftentimes people think of, you know, genetic issues as strictly mutations and sure mutations are major, but gross mutations, things that cause complete ablation of something or a gain of function, which is another topic that kind of came out during the whole COVID mess. These things happen with gross mutations, but they're a lot rarer than the more innocuous version, which are like single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are a single base is changed in the code, and it doesn't actually alter the way the enzyme is made. It just alters the way it works, and a really good one is a folic acid uh, enzyme that has been discussed quite regularly. It's found in people who tend to, or, or particularly women who have a lot of birth defect issues whenever they, they're, they're giving birth. Uh, because folic acid is huge for that, a particular one, neural tube defects. But the other thing is is um, heart disease. There's a particular uh, route to um, atherosclerosis that is through a protein byproduct that is a direct result of a low folic acid intake into the body. And now some people may say, well, you know, everything's loaded with folate now. And yeah, I mean, the, the USDA actually mandated that foods that were processed be loaded with folate because of the neural tube defects. And, and it has worked at a sort of public health level. But the reality is, is this is all based on that enzyme having one or another. There's like two different variations outside of what the norm variation would be. And in both of those cases, the enzyme is significantly less active than the one that is natural 
in the body, or I want to say natural, because these mutations are natural in other people's bodies as well. They're just different. And maybe that may be because of the type of diet they were, their ancestry was eating. Who knows why these things mutate or what causes it. But the reality is, is that if you're one of those individuals with that type of folic acid, you're going to need more folic acid in your diet in order to get the same result as somebody who does not. And I think that's the best way to describe how genetic risk is so weird in bodies. And we can, you know, project this out over a variety of genes and show how the environment can cause this. But just like I said about the diabetes thing, if you're taking in enough folic acid, and this is like the functional medicine approach, it doesn't matter if you have either of those two variations that cause a less active enzyme, you can be perfectly healthy and never actually experience any of those diseases. And so that's all I really have uh, in this segment about genetic risk. I hope that explains a little bit more and I hope that drives conversation. I'm hoping in the new year that we can get a little bit more uh, back and forth between my listeners and myself. So that's the end of this segment. So sometimes I like to, you know, go down rabbit holes with topics. And I think I've discussed this in a couple podcasts before where I either, you know, sort of randomly search the interwebs for a topic I find interesting um, and see what happens. Um, I think this was more specific than I usually do. I didn't just search for, you know, fitness headlines or nutrition headlines, which I've done um, in certain cases and just look for headlines and see where those go. But in this case, I, I just kind of put in a pretty specific keyword search and got a pretty good article right up front of, of the discussion that I'd like to have with you in this segment, which is about impulse control. And obviously, this is a good conversation to have around the holidays, we all know. So, you know, one of the things that is, or I find interesting, and one of the directions that I'm going as a coach in terms of nutrition is looking at... Um, intermittent fasting as a primary way to get people into healthier behaviors. And it has some validity um, in a couple cases. And, and I, I think in another pod, I talked about the, bio, the biochemical um, validation I think I've gotten from an individual. Um, in this case, I think this, this helps me sort of solidify the other side of it, which is impulse control. And that's something that I am familiar with, uh, even though I, I wouldn't call myself an expert in impulse control. I've, I've done enough in psych. I haven't really done anything specific in psych, but in terms of like life experience, impulse control has been one of the areas in which that, um, you know, I've had to learn a lot from the school of hard knocks because I, I can be definitely an impulsive person and I have my impulses like everybody else does. So, you know, the... What I wanted to see was its connection to food, and I, I wasn't not, you know, I'm not like terribly surprised at the correlation. What I think surprised me in this article and why I decided to throw on the mic and just go right away with this instead of doing a little bit more research uh, or even reading the entirety of this article, which I, you know, plan to do down the road. Um, I just found it interesting that one of the things they cite is that it's not necessarily a conscious thought when you end up being impulsive about food. It's typically um, a cue-based thought, which is a term called heuristics. Um, I think kind of like a layman's way to discuss it is, uh, is like a knee-jerk reaction. So, you know, you're hungry, you see a cue, the cue instantaneously, there's your, there's your decision. There wasn't a whole lot of effort put into that decision. And certainly, 
you know, the consequences of that decision were not really weighed out. And so therefore, there you go. And some people that's really easy. There's, you know, they're not there if they're not going to seek, you know, healthy behaviors. Obviously, I, I try to encourage everybody, but people are people, they're going to do what they want to do. Um, and some people that's just it. That's the way they treat food. It's there. It's immediate. Um, it, it serves its purpose instantaneously. And that's one of the things with impulsive behavior is that it's immediate um, need to scratch an itch to to fulfill whatever that desires now that can become way more problematic in other realms of mental illness we're just going to stick to the food side of things right now and just talk about how it relates to food and so that was interesting it's that um, part of the problem is is that in most of those cases there's not a ton of conscious thought now people do you know go into the new years looking to eat healthier and people are always talking about it I, I hear a lot from individuals when they hear what I do um, it, the biggest thing the most important thing before you begin to really try to change some of the foods is is, is getting control of the impulse and understanding that typically those impulses are just, it's an ease of access. There's, there, it's, it's cue-based and it's an ease of access. So when you begin to start exacting some kind of conscious control over it, it's gonna kick back on you. And that's, I think, the thing that you see and why a lot of people fail at changing their dietary habits is because they don't understand exactly, they think that this control is easy but if you've allowed this control to be sort of just governed by an instantaneous cue for so long, it's going to be very, very difficult. And then the problem also lies with the, you know, the biochemistry of these foods. A lot of the, the, the food tendencies are, you know, fast food, junk food, things that have a lot of, you know, the highly palatable, um, you know, really can mess with your brain chemistry, not just because of the amount of sugar, added sugar that tends to be in them. Um, or just really highly processed uh, carbohydrate sources, but also a lot of the, the additives and, and things that are put into food, you know, it, it tends to drive the, 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 the tendency. So to, to sort of completely separate you from that instantly as you are enacting the control is a very difficult thing to do. And so it, it, it's just, uh, it, it just certainly makes sense to me, I think, moving forward as a practitioner. And I think... The path is the intermittent fasting um, because it is a way of consciously first exacting the control on the behavior. And I think that has to come more so before you start really tinkering with the types of food you eat and you start understanding how to make conscious thought. And to be honest with you, there's enough bad information out there that I don't think people always understand what a good conscious thought is or how they can work in things like, you know, the holidays or birthdays or, you know, special events, special moments where those foods are not only a very high quality, but also have more of a meaning other than I just really felt like having a piece of pizza. So I went and got a box pizza. And that's what I think this, this basically says to me. Now, I, I want to go through, they use this scale here called the UPPS scale. Um, that's basically what this article is about. That's why I haven't, I don't think the information that we would be, that I would be getting from the rest of this article was really going to impact the overall message. 
Uh, but there are some interesting things here. And you can just look at, you know, some of the ways in which they look. And some of these might describe you. I remember reading some and laughing a little bit. But uh, the number one, there's five things that they say go into this scale. It's multidimensional. Um, negative urgency. Then you have lack of premeditation. The third one is lack of perseverance. Uh, then the fourth one is sensation seeking. And then the final one is positive urgency. So you could kind of guesstimate what some of those are, are. And if you're interested in the article, just let me know and I'll send you the link. But um, intermittent fasting, I think, is a way to kind of deal with some of these things. And particularly when food is not necessarily a conscious thought, it's really just a, a reflex reaction to being hungry. When you get into that realm, the the area that I think most people would probably, there's going to be some kind of a, a feeling of, well, what do I do? And, and typically that leads to, you know, different, different um, you know, bad behaviors. Because if, if you're not trying to just say, oh, I won't eat in this particular case, then, then you know, sometimes you're just going to, when you're reacting on impulse, then you're going to, you know, end up with something bad. So what this, it just kind of resets the system is what I'm trying to say. And I think I got a little rambly there. But, um, so think about that when you guys are sitting around the dinner table. I know that's a fun place to do it during the holidays. Uh, but really think about it as you move into the new year is if you're really trying to change your diet, consider intermittent fasting for the impulse control side of it. And if you haven't listened to the earn the bird, which is one of my favorites, you know, we talk about that attitude. Um, you know, understand that not every meal has to be massive for the holidays. And I think you guys will make it through it all right. And we'll see you on the other side. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. Tarif knock out, knock out, knock out. Local rapper part one, part one, part one.